So again, just like we did in sessions one and sessions two, we're going to start with a blessing, just like they did in Jesus' day. So I will say the blessing in Hebrew, and you will be able to repeat after me, because I'll say it slow enough. And then we'll say it together in English. Baruch atah Adonai. Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Ashir bakar banu mikol ha'amin. Ve'natan lanu et torato. Ve'nevi'im ha'tovim. Ve'natan lanu et ha'besora mashiach Yeshua. Ve'natan lanu et habrit chadasha. Barukata Adonai. Noten Adevere Emet. And now let's say it together in English. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from all people and given us his Torah and the good prophets, and given us the good news of Messiah Jesus, and given us the good covenant. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the words of truth. So now we're going to head back to Israel, just like we have done in the previous versions, in, in the previous sessions, session one and session two. Ready to go? Let's go. So we're going to head back to Israel. We're going to take off from the capital of Minnesota, St. Paul, as we just saw there, head across the Atlantic and head east towards Israel and the city of Jerusalem back to our Jewish roots. And we're going to return again, just like we did in sessions one and two, to the Mount of Olives. And in Jesus's day, it was basically one big olive grove, just like we see in this picture here. A terrace, the garden, a terrace, the gan. And indeed, we have a closer look at what a gan may look like, an olive grove built on a hillside. If you ever go on tour to Israel, one of the places that you're going to stop at is this overlook, this overlook of the Temple Mount, and you'll meet Jerry the camel. I don't care what year you've gone or what year you will go, Jerry will be there, and you will be able to ride on Jerry or maybe his grandson or maybe his great-great-grandson. Regardless to say, we've named them all Jerry. Now, one of the things that you can do when you're there at the Mount of Olives, you can actually go to the right from that overlook. And there is a walk down. And you can see my wife, Robin, there in her blue shirt, uh, the first person down. And you could walk here down to a very basically famous corner. And that corner is the place where you would come to the Church of All Nations. In the back, you can actually see the Russian Orthodox Church dedicated to Mary Magdalene. The walkway itself that you saw Robin walking down is actually goes between uh, these two churches. With regards to the Church of All Nations, the one famous piece or the one famous part of this church, is the Catholics have said that that garden of olive trees 
just to the left of the main sanctuary is the Garden of Gethsemane. However, when I take people to Israel, I take them to another location, and that is it's off to the left or the north of the Church of All Nations, and we go to this church, which is a church that commemorates Mary, the mother of Jesus. But we're not so interested in the church as we are interested in that narrow, you might say a little alley or passageway uh, off to the right. When we walk down that passageway, we're actually walking into an ancient cave on the Mount of Olives, basically on the Mount of Olives at the base of the olive grove. When we take a little bit closer look, we notice that there is a sign above the door, and the sign above the door says in Greek, Gethsemane. Isn't that interesting? Now, what happens is when we actually study God's word, the words Garden of Gethsemane are never put together in the Bible. You either have Gethsemane or you have Garden, but never are they put together? So when we take a look at this in Matthew 26, 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Or we go to Mark 14, 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. We go into Luke 22, 39. And it says he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. So in Luke, it doesn't even talk about garden, and it doesn't talk about Gethsemane. When we go to John chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the, uh, over the, ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. This is a chapel now, a Catholic chapel, and you can visit it. However, you have to be aware that there are certain times during the day and certain times during the week when they do hold services here and prayer meetings. But unequivocally, you can check this in Biblical Archaeology Review and other scholarly sources that this used to be an olive press. Olive press in Hebrew is got press, Shemanim, for oils, Got Shemanim, olive press, or oil press, Got Shemanim, Got Shemanim, Greek, Get Semani. And so, indeed, it looks as if Jesus went to a part of the olive grove, Agan, okay? It's not just a garden, but uh, the Hebrew word Gan can stand for an olive grove, or it could stand for an apple orchard or a vineyard, or just a little garden in your backyard. So they went to the olive grove, and there happened to be a Gethsemane, a Gat Shemanim. When you're actually visiting this location, which you can do, you're going to see this sign. And with regards to this, it gives more specifics with regards to the real archaeology of this place. Let's take a look at it a little bit closer. We notice that it's called the Grotto of Gethsemane. And again, the Greek word for Gat Shemanim, an olive press, is Gethsemane. 
The grotto is a natural origin. It's basically 17.6 meters long and 11.4 meters wide and basically three and a half meters high. The name Gethsemane being applied both to the grotto and the surrounding area uh, is Aramaic, uh, Aramaic, Aramaic origin. It is a single word composed of two separate words, got, press, and Shemanim oils. Now, I'm going to basically correct the sign here. It's not Aramaic origin. It's Hebrew origin. That's what the Hebrew is. Thus, together, they refer to a press or a storehouse for oil placed here in the grotto. The remains of this olive press were brought to light by the excavations done by Father Vigilio Corbo. And that happened to be in 1956. So indeed, as we reconnect to those days 2,000 years ago via real archaeology, it's not that we're mistaken. It's not that there's something missing in the Bible. But once again, archaeology helps us to reconnect to those days. And so our understanding is enhanced and enriched and expanded. We get those ideas of and, and those real concepts of what it was like back then. But we have come to the Mount of Olives for a different purpose. Because we remember that Jesus ascended to the Father. But before he ascended, he was teaching his disciples. And according to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we read, so that when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in other lessons, we talked about the fact of being a disciple. All of us are disciples of Jesus. Talmudim in Hebrew, in Greek, matetis. But a disciple, again, is one who wants to be like their rabbi, wants to get out of the boat because their rabbi's walking on water, so they want to walk on water. But there are some disciples that with regards to what Jesus is teaching here that are not going anywhere. They're staying in Jerusalem, Judea, Jerusalem is in Judea. So when you leave the city of Jerusalem, you're in Judea. Or Samaria. Samaria was just a province just north of Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's within walking distance, really. So these are disciples that are going to stay. However, there are disciples that will be sent. Apostolos in Greek or in Hebrew, Shalekim, the ones who are going to be sent. And they're going to be sent to the ends of the earth. Now, the question is, where is the ends of the earth? I mean, do we leave the earth and we're on the moon or we're on another planet? Question is, where is that? What does Jesus mean by that? Now, the thing that we have to remember, Jesus is Jewish. He's teaching Jewish people in the, the first century, early first century AD. He's a sage. That's what they were called in Jesus' day, not rabbis. The term rabbi for a Torah teacher, Jewish religious man who heads a synagogue, that happens 
way after the temple's destroyed. But in Jesus's day, what we know as Jesus being called a rabbi, or the rabbis in Jesus' day are really called sages, the wise men who are teaching the application of Torah. And he's teaching Jews. And he's teaching Jews then what they understood then, not now. Let's consider three scriptures that will give us some background with regards to this idea of the ends of the earth. First one is Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 49. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar from the end of the earth. As the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. Now, when we think about there's a nation coming from afar. Where's afar? From the ends of the earth. It's pretty clear that the ends of the earth here means someplace outside of Israel. Let's take a look at another verse. Deuteronomy 28, 63 to 64. And both of these verses right now have everything to do with God inspiring Moses to predict what is going to happen to Israel in the future when they turn from God. So in 28, 63 to 64, we read, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and to multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. So look at this. They're going to be torn from the land, scattered among the peoples to the ends of the earth, or to the other end of the earth. And again, this seems to connect the, the idea of the ends of the earth, or the end of the earth, is really the border of Israel with the outside nations. In other words, the ends of the earth seems to be everything outside of Israel. Then we go to Isaiah 49.6, which is a verse that we've been talked about in previous lessons. And he says, the Lord, is it, it, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, the nations the end of the earth, outside of Israel. So even the rabbis got it, and based upon those scriptures, the ends of the earth is basically everywhere outside of Israel. Now, the point being here is this. Jesus is teaching just like the other rabbis. And to understand, obviously, many of those things that Jesus is teaching, many of the concepts that he is presenting, we need to understand his Jewish culture. I highly recommend Dr. Brad Young's book, Jewish the, Theo, uh, the Jewish Theologian. Amazing. And again, Dr. Brad Young, he is a Christian pastor and a scholar supreme. And he takes us back into the culture of 2,000 years ago. And again, we go back and then we try to understand what the disciples heard, what they saw and understood. 
what Jesus is teaching to the Jewish people 2,000 years ago. And once we get the context of what was going on then, our understanding is enhanced and enriched. I highly recommend this book. So that means Jewish, Jesus' Bible is the Old Testament. It's called the Tanakh. That's an acronym. T for Torah, N for Nevi'im, the prophets, and Chet, there's no English uh, letter equivalent to Chet. It's like a K-H, Chet, okay, a Chetuvim for the writings. In other words, the Old Testament. This is Jesus's Bible. Now, we were just at the Mount of Olives, and what I'd like to do is take off from our location, which was really very close to the Church of the Nations, and head to a location in the Galilee. We're basically centered right over the ancient location of the town of Capernaum. And in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, Jesus says, meet me in the Galilee on a hill. So they meet Jesus on a hill someplace in the Galilee. It must be shortly before the ascension. It's not the ascension yet, but shortly before. And this is when Jesus teaches us the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Christians are to be like their rabbi. This is what we have already taken a look at. That we are disciples. We want to be like our rabbi. We're we're an image of our rabbi. We're the imitation of Christ, as the church has put it. Paul said it very succinctly. He said, be like me, for I am like him, in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be like him. For, be like Paul. Why? Because he's like Jesus. Because he's a disciple. Or Romans 8.29, we're in the image of the Son. We're in, we are, we are in, in the image of the Son. We are the image of the Son. Now, image, we know that Jesus spoke Hebrew. And when we go to Thayer's Greek lexicon, the Greek word used there is icon. Strong's number is G1504. But like I said, if you have the correct version of Thayer's Greek lexicon, Thayer's always will give you the Hebrew word used mostly in the Septuagint for image or figure or likeness. And, and you can see it there with the red arrow. Remember, the Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek that was done under the order of a pharaoh, probably 200 BC, someplace in there. So that Hebrew word, we take it to the uh, Gesenius Hebrew Chaldee lexicon, and we found that that Hebrew word is tselem, not teslem, or tzizlem, but tzelem, an image or a likeness or a shadow. Now, what's interesting is the word tzelem is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that a man and woman are made in God's image. Tzelem. We could almost say that we are a shadow. So when you see your shadow on the ground, if you are a true Christian, that shadow should be the shadow of Jesus, not yours. 
because we are a shadow of Jesus, an image of him. So in the garden, it seems like Adam and Eve had a close relationship with God, and they probably could definitely say, Emmanuel, God is with us. And they were made in his salem, in his image. But then we have to remember a command. The first command in the Torah, the first law of Torah, God says to Adam and Eve, increase and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? His image. Man and woman increasing and multiplying and filling the earth with God's image. But then God is with us again. It's Yeshua. And it's at the end of his earthly stay with us. And we could say, Emmanuel, God was with us again. And as his disciples, okay, we are to be his Selem. We are to be in the image of Jesus. Look at Matthew 28, 19. What is the command? Disciples are to make disciples of all nations. God's plan from the creation is that the earth is to be filled with his image. It didn't work out with Adam and Eve. And so the Lord God developed his redemption plan that he could redeem both Jew and Gentile alike that they could be in the image of his son, the image of Jesus. The Bible, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, is a book of discipleship. God wants to fill the earth with his image. And as disciples of Jesus, this is part of our lives. It's part of the purpose of our lives. To go and make disciples, to go and fill the image, to go and fill the earth with the image of Adonai.